today on CityCast Denver. It's an uncomfortable topic, but we've got to talk about sex offenders. Because Colorado has 20,000 names on our sex offender registry, and their offenses range widely from human trafficking to peeing in public. And a lot of those people landed on the registry when they were just kids. I often ask people in the community, we've done all these things, do you feel safer? And people tell me no. And I say, yeah, because we're often implementing um, strategies, interventions that don't work. So what would work? My guest today is a clinician who's been working to convert new ideas about preventing sex offenses into smarter, more effective policy. Today is Thursday, October 7th, 2021. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. So, okay, so you want to hold your phone up. That's the important part, and we can get started. Perfect. My guest today, Dr. April Alexander, does a lot. She's an associate professor at the University of Denver in psychology. She's on the board for the Colorado Juvenile Defender Center, and for many years, she has worked with sex offenders in treatment programs as well as prevention. I wanted to talk to Dr. Alexander about her work with sex offenders, specifically youth offenders, and how the systems we have put in place to protect people might need to change. Dr. Alexander, welcome to CityCast Denver. (laughs) Thanks for having me today. So what are some of the stories that you've heard from people who are put on the sex offender registry as minors? Like, what are some things that kids did to get on the registry, and and what has their experience been in life? Yeah, so uh, prior to moving here to Colorado five years ago, I worked in Alabama. Um, I was a professor at Auburn University, but we had a contract with the Department of Youth Services to run a treatment program for adolescents who were adjudicated or convicted of sexual offenses. So I saw teenage boys ranging in age from 12 to 21 in this treatment facility. And one of the messages I try to get across to people is quality treatment, evidence-based treatment does work. We would actually track these kids after they were released for every two years, and our recidivism rate for sexual violence was 4%. So only 4% of our youth who completed our program uh, went on to commit a future sex offense. But what I noticed is, again, because of some of these laws, our youth were either placed on the registry for 10 years or a lifetime. And when we're talking about these unlawful offenses, they can range in different types of offenses. So I had a few um, boys in our facility who um, had, quote unquote, child pornography on their phone, meaning they're a 14 year old kid. They're dating another person in their school and that person sends them a naked photo. Technically, by law, you're in possession of child pornography. So a teacher picks up your phone it gets turned in, you go to jail, and now you are a sex offender. Wow. And I would say, I think that that's something maybe adults, folks like us that have not grown up with cell phones, don't realize is more common than we think. Yeah. Or we had some boys who were going on the internet and looking up child pornography. They weren't those um, individuals who were, again, these violent and predatory. They were looking for pornographic images of girls uh, in their school. Sure, So, uh, again, they didn't know that that was illegal to look up child pornography because still in this country, we don't talk about sex education or comprehensive sex ed. So thinking about these boys who we gave them the treatment, we gave them the comprehensive sex education, 
a lot of them had trauma histories, which is uh, what a lot of my research is on. Um, we gave them that trauma um, treatment. And so they're going to be good for the rest of their lives, right? Uh, we mm-hmm. got them back in school. We got them engaged with their families and all of that. But they're going to be on this registry. What does mm-hmm. that do? Well, they get back home and the principal says, I don't want you in my school. Uh, principals had discretion on whether or not they wanted to accept them back into the school, even if their offense didn't happen in school. Uh, so now they have to change schools. Uh, them and their parents are getting harassed. Their parents are getting fired from their job. So now their parents have to move uh, locations. And a lot of our students were low income. Yeah. Maybe they did get their GED or their high school diploma, and now they want to get ready to go to college. There were some universities across the country, particularly in Florida, who wanted you to do community notification for the people in your dorm or the people at your university. And once again, everybody's going to hear sex offender. Not, they're not going to hear, I had a picture of my girlfriend on my phone. And so thinking about those long term, we talk about, uh, we call them collateral consequences, these unintended adverse consequences to being on the registry. And it's resulted in our young people having mental health concerns. If you can't reintegrate back into your community, it's going to cause you to be depressed, anxious. Uh, We've had youth who've had suicide attempts or completed suicides. And it's interesting that you talked about the trauma doing this work around the trauma that maybe happened to a young person before they offended themselves if that if that trauma informed care and like teaching had happened before they maybe had would have not offended in the first place yeah exactly i published an article that came out um i believe in 2019 uh that looked at these histories we would do these comprehensive assessments on these boys get their life stories So they've Mm -hmm. uh, had sexual abuse. They experienced physical abuse. They witnessed domestic violence. They got to school and there was school or gang violence. All of this in their history. Did anybody treat them for that? Yeah, right. And we're we're treating it after the something has happened. Absolutely. Why are we waiting until after they commit their offense to approach treatment? Uh, Where were they when um, a caregiver was exposing them to pornography or offending against them? Yeah. So in doing all of this work that you've been doing over many years in many states, do you feel like we should have a sex offender registry? So this is one of the big questions. The sex offender registry was developed, like I said, in reaction to a lot of these high profile cases. We knew something needed to be done, that in these high profile cases, all of these cases, what they had in common were adults uh, who had sexually offended, Uh, had prison sentences, uh, but were relatively short, I think a lot of community would agree, were released without any supervision, without any treatment. And what happened? They either committed another sexual offense or they committed a murder. Um, So our community said, we need to do something about this. And so that's why the registries were developed. And even if you talk about um, the registry with myself and other colleagues, they'll say, yeah, it made sense at the time that we wanted to keep track. We wanted to know if these individuals were in our neighborhood. But what we found out through the research is it's actually not doing what we thought it was going to do. That over the last 15 years, we found out that these laws actually don't reduce sexual violence recidivism, and they're not making our communities any safer. Uh, In fact, uh, those who are placed on the registry are more likely to reoffend in some of these uh, studies compared to individuals who've committed sex offense who are not placed on the registry. So that's even more frightening, right? Um, So I think the conversation that needs to be had now is 
how do we reexamine our approach to reducing sexual violence and sexual violence recidivism? It's, it's really working on what happens before somebody gets to that point. Absolutely. So speaking of um, talking about sort of laws around this issue, there's a new bill in Colorado, uh, House Bill 1064, and it seemed to be a step in the right direction. Can you talk about what this bill is? Yeah, so 1064 was, um, like I said, one, the sex offender registry isn't making our communities safer, isn't reducing sexual violence. So we're already having that conversation. And then two, I explained the collateral consequences on our youth. Um, So is there a pathway for youth to get off the registry? So they've successfully completed treatment. uh, They've been engaged in the community. They've followed all of their um, requirements of supervision and parole. Uh, Can they now be removed off the registry now that they've demonstrated that? And so House Bill um, 1064 allowed for that pipeline to get off of the registry and even do so automatically. There are individuals uh, who are adjudicated as youth who don't know that they can even get off the registry. Um, So some of it was a lot of community education of, hey, you you know you could potentially get off. Um, So why can't we just make that an automatic process? Uh, So this bill was allowing to, at age 25, if you're doing well, you've completed treatment, let's automatically get you off or seven years past the time in which you were placed on the registry or adjudicated. Um, So creating that streamlined pipeline for youth who, uh, again, have healed and are being successful in the community. And do you feel like from doing this work that there is an appetite for more reform around this in Colorado? There is. I think right now, especially pertaining to the juvenile criminal legal system, I think communities realizing our system's not working. Right. Uh, I often ask people in the community, we've done all these things. Do you feel safer? And people tell me no. Um, That's a great question. (laughs) And and I say, yeah, because we're often implementing um, strategies, interventions that don't work. Um, So I'm often challenging people to think of, can we try something else that works? Um, So uh, again, I often do the storytelling of the uh, uh, boys and youth I've worked with. Can we do things like comprehensive sex ed? Um, So right now, I think uh, community, not just here in Colorado, but across the country, is rethinking our approach to the criminal legal system and the juvenile criminal legal system. I want to talk more about that idea of comprehensive sex education that you just mentioned, because I know that in 2019, Colorado passed a law that requires all public schools to have comprehensive sex ed. Can you talk about what that looks like and how it could prevent sex offenses? Yeah, I think over my time as a clinician and working with young people and having these conversations about sex, they don't know much about sex and sexuality. Um, Sex is still a taboo topic in our society. Um, There's a lot of schools still to this day that don't offer sex education. Um, I believe there's about 12 or 13 states that say you can have medically inaccurate sex education. Oh, like it's legal to give inaccurate, quote unquote, education. Yeah, and you can talk about whatever you want. And this is just unfair to our young people. Uh, We're starting to see increased rates of dating violence in young people. And then again, a third of all sex offenses happen by people under the age of uh, 18. Hmm. So uh, again, as I'm talking to these youth and explaining some of these concepts, I I realize we need to have comprehensive sex education in our country, in our world. Other countries are doing it better than the United States, but the United States were really struggling. What is comprehensive sex education? One, let's just start by the basics and talking about sex and sex education. 
but also, uh, especially what happened here in Colorado in 2019, adding other components. So one, we want to have developmentally appropriate sex education. Um, when I talk to parents, I say sex ed needs to start once your kid starts talking. Mm. And they freak out. And I'm like, I didn't say we're talking about intercourse. I'm saying developmentally appropriate sex education needs to start when your child starts talking. Because I have seen victims in treatment as young as age four. Mm. And I want to protect your kids. So what do we talk about with four to six-year-olds? Boundaries. Mm-hmm. Talk about body parts. Using um, accurate names for body parts. Yes. All of that is what I mean when I talk about developmentally appropriate sex education. And then we'll start escalating it year after year until they get to teenage years where we do need to talk about things like intercourse. So first, it has to be developmentally appropriate. Culturally informed. Um, in LGBTQ inclusive sex education. We're not talking about LGBTQ sex in any sex ed program. Um, and so those kids are often lost and don't know how to navigate some of these uh, sexual health concerns. Uh, that even in the Colorado sexual health um, survey, uh, we're seeing higher rates of um, lack of condom use with like LGBTQ populations. Sure. So we need to be talking about um, protection. And then finally, consent. Uh, what does it mean to give um active affirmative consent uh, to any type of uh, bodily contact or sexual behavior from kissing all the way to uh, sexual intercourse again. So these are things that we are not talking to our youth about that we really need to do. Uh, Let's talk about the sex team. Let's talk about pornography. Um, And everybody cringes when I bring it up. And I say we have to because once again, the average age that we're seeing of kids picking up pornography is age 10. So a lot of, again, parents are saying, not my kids, and it is because we have these smartphones now. Yeah, the access is something we have never encountered before. Man, this is having me think about my own experience of, like, sex education, and I went to Catholic school, so <laughs> I got something that was not quite, but but on the other side of it, my mother is a nurse, and I, I had that early the early exposure you're talking about, um, accurately calling body parts by what they are, talking about boundaries. Um, I had all of that as a preschooler. So, but I understand not everybody gets that. Dr. Alexander, thank you so much. Thanks so much again for having me. And here's what else is happening in Denver. It was a packed house yesterday when a city council committee heard a proposal about a potential ban on all flavored tobacco products. The ban would also include hookah, cigarettes, and cigars, but the proposal's target seems to mainly be vaping products. After many folks testified on both sides of the issue, city council decided to postpone the vote until October 27th. Speaking of city council, a committee voted earlier this week to give a $400 bonus to city workers who complied with Mayor Hancock's vaccine mandate. Denverite reports that city employees had until September 30th to get vaccinated or potentially face termination, a mandate that was successful in getting more than 98% of that workforce vaccinated. The mayor's office framed the financial bonus as a reward, not an incentive to get the vaccine. But what about all the people who got vaccinated early? Where's their dang bonus? That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us, rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See you later.
that sounded reedy. <laughs> it's like, got my reedy voice on. Okay.